Um, this morning, I want to introduce you all to Jonathan, Father Jonathan. Many of you probably know Jonathan already. He moved here in December of this past year, and he is one of our resident clergy. So we have a few resident clergy who are with us and will preach periodically, help us celebrate and do other things. But then Jonathan also has this unique role with our diocese, and our diocese is spread all over the country. So the work that Jonathan is doing with the Diaspora Network is not just for Church of the Cross or Christ Church, but it's also with churches that are all over the U.S. And so we have the privilege of having Jonathan here and having kind of a front row seat to the work that he's doing, but know that this work is work that is serving so many different churches, not just in the U.S., but also folks um, all over the world. So we are excited to have Jonathan preach for us today. We're thankful for him and his presence here. Um, will you guys extend your hands and let's pray over Jonathan. Father God, we thank you for Jonathan. We thank you so much for the unique ways in which you've gifted him, Lord. We thank you just for his life experiences and how those have brought him here to Austin, to Church of the Cross, to our diocese, C4SO, Lord. We just pray um, your blessings poured out over him, Lord. This morning, as he preaches, God, we pray that we are able just to attune ourselves to the word that you have for us through Jonathan. But we also just pray, God, your blessing and your peace over Jonathan in the work that he's doing locally, but also nationally and internationally, God. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. May be seated. Uh, just as we begin today, uh, it is a diaspora custom to welcome guests who are here, and uh, Pastor Samson and I this last week were visiting a Pan-African church in the Runberg-Lamar area, and Pastor Caleb is here with us. If you can just greet Pastor Caleb who's visiting us today, and um, welcome him uh, after the service. Um, but yeah, I've been here at Church of the Cross since December. Um, I moved from Chicago where I had lived uh, for the last about 18 years, and it's been an adjustment to move to Texas. Can anyone relate to that experience? Um, not just the heat, um, not just the breakfast tacos, that was a new thing for me, uh, but the driving. Can anyone ad uh, admit to being a little bit, feeling out of place with Austin or Texas driving? Okay, a couple of you at least. Um, and there's a lot of highways. All of a sudden, you're on an access road, you're driving, and all of a sudden, it's a turn lane only. Chicago is a little different than that. Even though I grew up driving and learned to drive in Latin America, uh, it's been an adjustment, and one thing that constantly reminds me, I'm not from here, and I feel out of place. Even though my mom's from Kentucky, all the y'alls and all y'alls and other variants of that are new too. Um, but there's these, there's these rules, these unspoken rules, whether it's driving or food or uh, just the way you speak to one another, that remind someone when they're new to a place that they don't necessarily belong or that they're an outsider. Um, and I had a similar experience uh, driving. I have a lot of driving stories. I only share one today. But uh, I, never, I never actually took a driving test, like a, like a real driving test. So that's, that's a story for another day. But... Um, <laughs> In Panama, where we lived in high school uh, with my family, um, there was this strange kind of visa system where you would, if you were a guest or if you were a foreigner, you could get a two-month visa. And during that two-month period that you had the visa, you could apply then for what I think was like a 10-month visa. And then at the end of that 10-month visa, you applied again for two months, and during the two months, and it was this kind of leapfrog uh, deal. And so also your driver's license was tied to your visa status. So your visa, your, if you had the two-month visa, your driver's license lasted for two months. 
and then you had to renew, and then once you got the 10 month, your driver's license lasted for 10 months and so forth. So I remember one day, um, uh, my dad called me all of a sudden, and he said, yeah, I got pulled over, and it was in this kind of gap period. The two months had run out, we hadn't gotten yet the 10 month, and so he got pulled over by the cops with an expired license because his visa was expired. And um, the cop was hoping for a bribe, and my dad was kind of very stubborn. He wasn't going to give a bribe, and so he had, there's kind of this tense standoff, and finally he worked it out that he'd call me and that I could come pick him up in a second car, and the cop was going to let him go. So I said, okay, and so I kind of drove quickly there from home. It was about 10 minutes away. But as I'm driving, I'm thinking to myself, wait a second, my visa is the same as his visa. My driver's license is also expired. I hope he doesn't ask me for my driver's license. Um, so we got there, and sure enough, first question was, let me see your driver's license. So very quickly, the cop had two foreigners, two gringos, two cars, and the situation went from bad to worse. Um, I won't tell you the whole rest of the story. We ended up being able to get out of there, but it led to a long, intense standoff. Um, but this is just one small way, here in the US, visa processes are way harder, honestly, and way more unjust. But just a small example or small reminder for me and my family in that situation that not being from there, our, literally our citizenship status as being not Panamanian in that case, uh, led to all kinds of difficulties and hardships and really daily reminders that we weren't from there, that we were outsiders, that we had to live by a different set of rules in a similar way to driving here in Texas. And I think this is an example of what actually our passage today, which is Philippians, we're going to look at that. If you have your bulletins, I invite you to look at Philippians 3, 17 through 4, 1. This is partly what Paul is talking about that actually should be how we live as Christians today, that in a similar way to that out-of-sense feeling of being in a new place and not knowing the rules, or even some of the injustices that happen or inconveniences because you don't belong or aren't from that, that's actually a mark of what it means to be a Christian and how we are to live as Christians. Um, today's passage speaks, Paul speaks of heavenly citizenship, this kind of outsiderness, kind of otherness that is a key mark of what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we are actually supposed to live according to a whole different set of rules. Um, so what I'd like to talk about today is what does it mean to be heavenly citizens? And I feel like there's three parts of this passage and a little bit more of the whole book of Philippians that um, are three ways we can understand what it means to live as heavenly citizens. And it's embracing suffering, practicing servanthood, and entering into strangeness. Okay, suffering, servanthood, and strangeness. That this may be at least partially how we understand what Paul means here by uh, living as citizens of heaven. I'm going to read this passage again for us uh, in a different version, but I encourage you to follow along there in your bulletin just so we can hear it again. Again, it's uh, Philippians 3.17 through 4.1. And we've been in this, past, this uh, sermon series throughout the summer on this book of Philippians. But let me read it one more time. It says, Join together in following my examples, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as, for as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they may be like his glorious body. And I'll stop there. Let me give you a a little bit of context for this passage and for the book of Philippians, uh, especially if you're just joining us today for this sermon series. So um, the city of Philippi, um, you see Paul uh, going and sharing the gospel there in Acts chapter 16, and that's a really helpful context for understanding the book of Philippians. Um, But what's important to note is that the city of Philippi uh, had assisted the emperor of the time in several key battles and had been given a special status as a Roman colony. And being given the status of a Roman colony meant that that the inhabitants of the city, though we're going to see not all, but most of the inhabitants of the city were given then Roman citizenship. Uh, And this had a lot of privilege associated with it. This was a big deal. And Philippi, the city, was proud of its status as a Roman colony. There was a sense of civic pride, uh, and there was a lot of patriotism, and there were many privileges associated with being a, a colony. One commentator says it was the closest thing to being in Rome without actually being there, being in, in Philippi. So this was a big deal. And what happened in Acts 16, if you remember, Paul shows up, and if you remember, there's this servant girl, this slave, who's a fortune teller. So we see quick, quickly not all were citizens, right? And this is an important dynamic to realize is that uh, anytime and anywhere there's empire there's, and citizenship and privileges, there's going to be those who don't benefit from those and actually pay the price for other people's privileges. But there's a slave girl uh, who's, who's uh, fortune-telling and is uh, possessed by a demon. Paul casts out the demon. Um, the owners of the slave girl get mad because they're losing their money, and we start seeing how citizenship and religion and empire and money and commercial, uh, commerce kind of get mixed together there. And uh, Paul ends up in, in prison. He gets beaten. He's in jail. Um, and an interesting thing is that citizenship becomes a key piece of this story, if you remember from Acts uh, 16. At the very end, after he's already been beaten, after he's already in jail, is when they're about to release him. Then Paul says, hey, I'm a citizen of Rome as well. And he could have claimed that earlier, which is interesting because citizens were not to be beaten without a trial. They were not to be put in jail. So we see Paul, in a sense, doesn't claim his citizenship or the privileges as being a citizen of Rome till after being beaten, till after being put in jail. Um, and then, but then he is released at that point. And so we see this, this theme of citizenship is a big piece for Philippi, and it's a big piece for understanding then the book of Philippians. Um, and today's passage, I feel like, has three kind of main portions. It's Paul saying, first of all, follow my example. So he's talking to the Philippians. He says, hey, look at me. Do as I do. Follow my example. And then he says, basically, don't be like them. And he talks about these enemies of the cross, these people who aren't living as heavenly citizens. They're living according to an to earthly set of rules. They're living according to their Roman citizenship. And what is their focus? On earth and on pleasure. It says that God is their stomach. So if Paul's saying, follow my example. Don't be like them. And then he said, instead, live as citizens of heaven. Live as heavenly citizens. These are kind of the three portions of this passage today. Um, so what does it mean for us to live as heavenly citizens here in Austin, Texas. Um, 
What if Austin, Texas was actually more like Philippi, more like Rome, perhaps even more like Sodom in the Old Testament reading that we read today than we would like to admit? What does it mean to live as that remnant, those perhaps 10, 15, 20, especially in today's day and age where there's so much falling away from God and his kingdom? What does it mean to live as heavenly citizens? And again, I think there's three pieces there. And the first is embrace suffering. Embrace suffering. Um, Pastor John Monger, uh, many of you perhaps have met, he's a pastor of International Restoration Church, which is a mostly Nepali, Bhutanese refugee church, just uh, literally like four minutes down the road this way, um, on Sprinkle Road, I think it is, is their property. Um, uh, they don't own a church building, uh, but they do have this land, which is beautiful, and a river runs through it. But um, uh, we've been getting to know him, uh, and Father Peter actually introduced me to him and to the church right before his sabbatical. And it's interesting about thing about Pastor John. He always starts by sharing a bit of his story. And the portion of his story that he always shares is, and this is a quote from him, and he says, God gave me the vision for this church in 2005 when I was in the refugee camp in eastern Nepal. I was kicked out of the country of Bhutan because of my faith in 1992. And the government gave me two choices, deny Jesus or be kicked out of the country. And I said, I will not deny Jesus. It's interesting that he always starts talking about his testimony and his story with talking about suffering, particularly the suffering of being put in jail, suffering of being a refugee. And, and somehow it's interesting, he, he's actually in a doctoral program, he's done a, a, an MA at Asbury Seminary, he's got a large thriving church. But the authority that he bases his ministry on, it isn't his education, isn't uh, the size of his congregation, it's actually his suffering. And he does this every time he shares a story. I think this is something very Pauline. Paul does this over and over in this book and throughout uh, his letters. And when he says, follow my example, one of the key pieces that he's saying is, follow my example in suffering. We see this um, throughout, say, verse 10, uh, just earlier in the same chapter, know Christ and the fellowship of his suffering. Um, and then, uh, and really throughout this book, over and over, he brings up in joy, particularly in suffering. Remember the context that Paul is writing the letter from is again in prison, and he was in prison and literally beaten when he had preached the gospel in Philippi, despite being a Roman citizenship citizen. And, he, and Paul's contrasting this life that's marked by suffering for the gospel, particularly for others. He's a, a life lived for the sake of others, out of love for Jesus, over and above anything else. Uh, he contrasts that with a life of pursuit of earthly pleasures and comfort. He says, the enemies of Christ, their God is their stomach. And this is the contrast. And Paul says, follow me. I think particularly, he's saying, follow me by embracing suffering. What does it mean for us, again, in Austin, Texas, in 2022, to embrace suffering? Is this a mark of who we are as Christians or a mark of who we are as the church? When people speak of the church, whether not just here, but more broadly in Austin, Texas, what is the church known for? What is your family known for? And, and, and what am I in my life? What am I known for? There's this contrast with the enemies of Christ, he says there in, um, uh, in verse 19. Their destiny is destruction. Again, there's even... Uh, a little bit of echo here with um, 
the Old Testament reading. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. I think there's a sense of like, yeah, you're doing great. Philippi is this great city. You have citizenship, you have wealth, you have status, and this is really dangerous. And part of the antidote to that is actually an embrace of suffering. And Paul's saying, don't stay there and pursue those things. Look ahead, look to the kingdom, look to an alternate source of identity and belonging. There's, there's a danger in fitting in and of, of easy belonging. Again, of course, I'm not saying that this means embracing or condoning abuse in the church or in a relationship, um, pursuing suffering for suffering's sake. Um, and we need key discernment from other leaders to kind of understand the difference in, in the sufferings that we are experiencing. But there's this radical orientation towards others, particularly towards the poor and to those who are far from the gospel, far from God, that leads naturally to suffering. Um, and there's a particular orientation of prioritizing the gospel, pri- prioritizing the kingdom, and actually finding joy there way more than in the privileges and the comforts that come from Rome, from Sodom, from earth. You know, I think part of this, uh, just trying to think again, what does this mean for us here? Suffering is is something we don't like to talk about, and that's already a sign that there's something potentially wrong, because Paul talks about it so much. But I think often, and I think back to the fortune teller, this girl, and the way that her owners are trying to make money, again, in Acts 16, I think there's something about control that the more privilege we have and the more citizenship we have, there's this desire to control our surroundings, uh, to minimize risk, and to also try to predict the future, whether it's through the weather app or uh, whether, where the stock market is gonna go or so forth. Um, and in, in contrast to that, heavenly citizens embrace a life of risk and of pain when it comes to sharing the gospel with others and finding Jesus particularly there. Heavenly citizens are people of the cross. What does it mean for us, Church of the Cross, to be people of the cross and to be heavenly citizens? I think it means embrace suffering. And the second piece, I think it means to practice servanthood. Um, Rather than to stand and enjoy the privileges of Roman citizenship in their case, Paul challenges and calls them to practice servanthood. And when he says, imitate me, he also earlier in the book says, imitate Jesus, particularly um, in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, what is sometimes called the kenosis, the pouring out. Um, I'm read this um, in the New Living Translation, 2, 5 through 11. It says, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Other translations say something to grasp. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. And again, in the context of what Paul is talking about, I think citizenship is part of that. He gave up. Jesus himself didn't cling to heavenly citizenship. But he entered, and it says he took the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being when he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Jesus is the consummate servant and the consummate outsider, as we'll see. The consummate migrant who comes from heaven and has this alternate citizenship but lives here, but doesn't cling to the power and privileges associated with who he is. And he leaves us the example of what it means to serve others. Not just a a hands up or a help from a distance, but a very entering into the very suffering 
of his people. There's a downward mobility um, that is the way of the cross. Um, one of my favorite authors is um, Henry Nouwen. And Henry Nouwen has a book uh, called Downward Mobility, and this is a quote from him. He says, the society in which we live suggests in countless ways that the way to go is up, making it to the top, entering the limelight, breaking the record. That what, that's what draws attention, gets us on the front page of the newspaper, offers us the reward of money and fame. The way of Jesus is radically different. It is the way not of upward mobility, but of downward mobility. It is going to the bottom, staying behind the sets, choosing the last place. And why is the way of Jesus worth choosing? Because it is the way to the kingdom, the way Jesus took, the way that brings everlasting life. And I would add, based on Philippians, it is the way of joy. And it's interesting that this is also one of the main themes of this book, joy. What is the way of Rome um, versus the way of heavenly citizenship? What does it mean to pursue rather than up, down? Pursue and embrace and to practice servanthood. The way of heavenly citizens, they don't cling to their power, to their citizenship. They give it up for the sake of others. What would it look like for us to embrace servanthood and downward mobility? And finally, beyond embracing suffering and practicing servanthood, there's uh, a stepping into strangeness. Strangeness. Our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, about uh, three weeks ago, a month ago, uh, Pastor Samson and I moved into the Valdor Apartments. They're just across the highway over here in St. John neighborhood. It's a mostly Central American immigrant refugee apartment complex. Uh, as far as I can tell, at least in our building, I'm the only white male American resident. And uh, I stand out like a sore thumb for a lot of reasons. I'm uh, tall, I'm white, and, and many other things. But um, the other day, we uh, sat, literally, it's, it's kind of an inward-facing building in a square, and there's a courtyard in the middle, and um, just sat literally in front of uh, our door, together with another uh, Guatemalan friend who, who plays guitar as well. And we started singing some worship songs just there with the guitar, and within seconds, uh, or at least, at least minutes, there were all kinds of people looking out their doors, crowding around us, and all of a sudden we're pulling out their phones and like recording us. Um, mostly me, not him. But, uh, and part of the dynamic is we were singing in Spanish, and that's already kind of weird enough. Who's this white guy in Spanish? What are they doing here? And they're singing. Uh, but then secondly, we were also singing in Kekchi. Kekchi is an indigenous language. And, Guatemala, that many folks in that apartment complex and here in Austin speak. And I don't speak Kekchi, but I kind of found a translation of one of the songs, and I was just literally trying to read it off the page. The other man, Antonio, that was singing with me, he does sing Kekchi, so he was leading out mostly in that time. But people are like, who is this white guy? What is going on? And then later they come over and have Nigerian food that Samson had made, and this was strange. And it was surprising. And it was just by our presence a kind of proclamation. Uh, by being strange, by being different, people were not just curious, but were literally coming close to figure out what was going on. Um, and not that we we're perfect examples by any means of what it means to be outsiders, but I think it's a, a small example of that strangeness, of being outsiders, of not belonging, is actually intrinsic also to who we are as Christians. And it becomes one of the main ways that we also 
preach and spread the gospel. We're supposed to be different, not just in that we uh, are serving, that's strange enough, and we give up power and privileges, that's weird enough, um, not just in embracing suffering, but in our very nature and identity, we are other, we are different. Um, there's this letter, I think I have a quote, if, if we can pop it up on the screen here, it's also on the front of your bulletins, from the Epistle of Dionysius. This is a, a letter, we're not sure who wrote it, but uh, probably in the first couple hundred years um, after Jesus, um, written during a time of Christian persecution. And I'm going to uh, read this for us. It says, The difference between Christians and the rest of mankind or humankind is not a manner of nationality or language or customs. Christians do not live apart in separate cities of their own, speak any special dialect, nor practice any eccentric way of life. Nevertheless, the organization of their community does exhibit some features that are remarkable, even surprising. Can we say strange, weird? For instance, though they are residents at home in their own countries, their behavior there is more like that of transients. They take their full part as citizens, but they also submit to anything and everything as if they were aliens. For them, any foreign country is a motherland, and any motherland is a foreign country. I think this is part of what Paul is saying here. He says, live as heavenly citizens. There's an otherness that should mark us as Christians, as that remnant in Sodom and Gomorrah, as those people who are radically different, as heavenly citizens. I've had the privilege of, of living and working with immigrant or diaspora communities for the past 12 or so years. And um, over and over, immigrants have reminded me, have shown, they've functioned in my personal life as a kind of a kingdom icon or even a sacramental presence, reminding me of this reality of what it means to be citizens of a different land, of a different kingdom, of a different nationality. In Chicago, about half of my church uh, was undocumented. I pastored a mostly Mexican church. And we would sing this old kind of Spanish corito or hymn that it's called Más Allá del Sol. It, it was, it, the translation is Beyond the Sun. And it could sound honestly a little bit cheesy to my white Western ears. It says, over beyond the sun, I have a home. I have a home over beyond the sun. But what happens when you're singing that song and really belting it out with all your heart and you actually don't have citizenship here in this country and your home here in the earth is far away. Maybe you haven't seen your grandparents or your parents for years or months because of borders and separation and costs with travel. What does it mean to sing and actually long for a heavenly home? I can tell you that it was a profoundly moving experience every week being a part of a church like that. And this is partly why I do what I do as well, because I feel like all of us desperately need those kingdom reminders. We need relationships with people that are outsiders, that have that heavenly citizenship and live it here on earth that remind us who we are, because this is actually part of the nature of the church. First Peter 2, 9 through 12 reminds us that this is actually the identity of the church, that the church is an immigrant community, that we are strangers and foreigners, we're exiles here. Every language has a word for outsider. Ajnavi, gringo, gabacho in Greek, uh, paroiko, alien in English. Part of this story is that we are resident aliens. We don't belong, and if we actually feel like we do belong, then something is probably out of sync. Let me just say, if you don't belong, you have a kingdom advantage, whether it's because you're a person of color or your socioeconomic status. 
Um, this is part of what the Beatitudes say, and you have a kingdom advantage, and we who don't have those things need to lead and follow in your path. Because we all need these reminders of where our true allegiance and identity lies. The followers of a migrant messiah, the consummate outsider who is sacrificed outside the gates, crucified as an enemy of Rome. So, as we finish, how do we practice this? What does this look like in a practical way? Um, Paul says, verse 17, he says, I'm going to read it again. Join together in following my example, and then just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Who are you keeping your eyes on? Um, Last week, Father David asked a similar question. He said, who in your life helps you to love Jesus? I'm going to change it a little bit and say, who do you have in your life that helps you to live strange, that helps you to embrace suffering, that helps you to see a model or example of what it means to live servanthood? Um, Books are great. Podcasts are great. Historical mentors are great. Instagram, follow those folks. But who in flesh and blood can you actually talk to and call and visit and is showing you a real-life example of what it means to do this? We need these people. Paul says, Look to me, look to us, and who are you looking to? You might say, yeah, Jonathan, you're, you're a single guy. You know, you're doing some crazy stuff over there. I, I, that's not me or my family or my place in life. Well, then who is? You need to find, we all need to find mentors and uh, people that are living this kind of lifestyle. And I think of, in my case, a family that um, for a time lived in an apartment complex with me in, in Chicago when they were single and we were starting the church in Chicago. Um, then they got married, and now they have four kids, uh, the Sorens family, who live in Aurora, Illinois, which is now more of a somewhat suburban context. And I think of them as, as sort of an ordinary strange family, and that family that practice ordinary strangeness. What does that look like? Uh, first of all, they chose a home on the wrong side of town. It's still a nice home, a large home, but they chose intentionally to find a home, even though it is have a picket, white picket fence, and they laugh about that, and I'm pretty sure they have a a classic kind of uh, suburban van and all these things of the family, but they, they also do some strange things. They've chosen intentionally to go to a Spanish-speaking church, and their kids are learning Spanish there. They didn't speak it before. Um, they intentionally purchased a two-level home, and the second level is kind of a separate apartment, and they've rented it out at a reduced rate to an under-resourced immigrant family that they are friends with. And they practice friendship, hospitality. They've made conscious choices about uh, their children and whose friendship who are the friendships that their children are a part of? Who are the parties they go to? Um, this is just one family that, for me, is a model of, I think, how I want to live uh, if and when I have a family one day. And they show that in those places they can find joy in Jesus. Who are those models for you? Um, I think another thing is find small and large ways to practice strangeness. And this means regularly put yourself in places and in context where you're an outsider. How are you regularly, you and your family and us as a church, putting ourselves in places where we're outsiders, where, we're, where we don't belong? It could be visiting an immigrant church here in Austin or a church from a different culture or race. Um, often these churches have more real experiences of suffering, like the church in Philippine. We need to learn. Um, maybe it means going on our next border trip this fall or going to the Guatemala vision trip just a small way to step in for a couple of days into an outsider dynamic. Um, maybe it means to practice hospitality with someone from a different racial cultural background. Maybe it means just to do a regular prayer walk around the neighborhood here at Church of the Cross, our new building. Maybe it means 
making some hard choices around schooling with your kids and maybe even choosing not the best school. Maybe it means actually choosing public school because of a desire to intentionally inhabit a space and be with, um, on mission in a certain context. It's different for everybody, and these are just examples and ideas just trying to stir our imagination. But how can you practice in large and small ways regularly placing yourself uh, in context where you're an outsider? And finally, Church of the Cross, now that we have this building and uh, we have a great deal of privilege associated with that, how can we resemble our name? Church of the Cross, Church of the Outsiders, Church of the Suffering Servant, Church of the Suffering One who died as an enemy of the state. What does that look like for us to inhabit then a building here? Um, rather than pursued as a place of security and comfort, how do we use this for the sake of others? How do we think of churches in our city that don't have buildings or particularly under-resourced ones? Um, it's great that even from the very beginning we've been sharing space with another church here on Sunday nights. Um, what does it mean to think about those without physical homes here in our immediate neighborhood that live under the bridge just a couple minutes from here or that live even in the lot behind us or some folks that live in RVs just on the road over here? Um, what if it meant thinking of things like laundromats or uh, showers for the homeless or how can we think of this building as for the sake of others? Um, so this might not be the most exciting sermon you've ever heard. Uh, come, serve, suffer, be an outsider, be strange. Um, but I think this is part of the gospel. And again, this is where Jesus finds, we find and meet Jesus and where we find and meet great joy according to this book. Today's passage invites us to live as heavenly citizens, kind of as outsiders, others. And this should be a strange mark, that should be a key mark for us as Christians. We learn to live by a different set of rules, different way of driving a different identity, a different allegiance, a different visa. This is part of who we are as a church. And I'm going to finish this time with a prayer that Father David wrote a collect for um, Fourth of July particularly, I think, which actually fits this passage. Let's pray together. O oh Lord, you whose kingdom is not of this world, strengthen, we pray, our allegiance to your kingdom. Deepen our loyalties to your global and immigrant body, and increase our longing for a better country, so that we may love our nation, our neighbors, in Jesus' name, as pilgrims in a strange land. Amen.